Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We're so glad that you've decided to join us today. And we're so glad that you keep returning. We are. <laughs> we're thankful that we have some listeners who match our crazy vibe. And love talking about the things that we love talking about. Mm-hmm. Murder. <laughs> and I'm assuming, Melissa, you have a murder case for us today? I do. Because that's <laughs> what we always talk about. That's good. <laughs> we really do appreciate you guys listening. And we've said it before, but once again, we want to ask you to do us a solid and tell your friends and family and coworkers about our podcast. We appreciate you guys listening and we'll appreciate the new listeners as well. Absolutely. Likes and follows, shares and comments always make our day. And ratings and reviews too. We got your back by bringing you the true crime and we'd love it if you had our back too. So that we can keep bringing you more content like today's case. Mm-hmm. Before we get into it, though, Christy, I want to ask you, when you find yourself in a situation that isn't working out for you, what do you do? Well, usually you try to change that situation, get out of it, alter it somehow. And what lengths would you go to to get out of that situation? Murder. <laughs> That's what we're talking about today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I really wouldn't murder, but I knew that was the answer that we're looking for. That is exactly what today's dirtbag did. They saw fit to remedy their relationship troubles by murdering their spouse. When are people going to learn that they can just get a divorce? It seems so much easier, doesn't it? Yeah. Or just take off even. Like mm -hmm. it's still a dirtbag move, but it's better than murder. Like mm -hmm. there's always something else that you can do than take someone's life. Always a different choice to make. This relationship wasn't going as he expected and wasn't living up to his standards. And rather than see the end of the relationship, they chose to end a person's life. And while not official, this murder just might have gained them the classification of serial killer. I'll let you be the judge of it. As I tell you the backstory, maybe you'll see a pattern emerge. Oh no, he does this more than once? Mm-hmm. Three times he remedies his relationship issues with murder. No way. Or it's suspected. Oh man. For the record, I think it's very plausible that this person was a dirtbag three times over, each time solving their personal issues by murdering someone. This person did not learn a healthy coping mechanism. Not at all. Can you imagine just like, oh, that person's really irking me. I think I'll murder them. Yeah, that's how he dealt with his issues. And doing it repeatedly means that he didn't feel remorse the first or second time that it happened. Nope. And that he got away with it. Oh, no. I'll start our case today with the hearsay, the gossip. Spill the tea. That's right. And I'll work my way through the backstory up to the murdered spouse. On July 26, 1970, a couple were out for a drive in a rural area near Presswick Country Club in Will County near Frankfurt, Illinois. Frankfurt was a quaint little historical town, and the couple were just out enjoying a leisurely Sunday. The day was going well until they happened across a police cruiser with its driver's side door open, and they didn't immediately see anyone around. Huh. As they got closer to investigate, there was a man lying in a ditch about six feet away from the car, wearing a t-shirt and shorts, gravely injured. What? 
Could you imagine that you're just out enjoying your Sunday and you come across a scene like this? No. So many things would be going through your mind. Yeah, I have so many questions. Where's the officer? And you would have this surge of panic go through you like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. This couple leave the man and the lone cruiser to find a phone to call for help. It's 1970. There's no cell phones and they're out in a rural area. So they end up driving about half a mile before they find a house that has a phone they can use. Before they even checked on him to see if he was okay and needed medical attention? That's what I was thinking too. I was like, would you both go for help or would one of you stay behind? Yeah, you would at least go check on him. Is he drunk and had passed out and is just laying in the ditch? Is he hurt? Is he dead? Does he need some kind of assistance? Is he breathing? They could see from when they pulled up that they thought he was very seriously injured and almost past their ability to help. That's still very bizarre. Mm -hmm. My first instinct would be to see if I could help. I think my instinct would be for one of us to stay behind and one of us to go for help. And then even if you couldn't do anything, at least you would be with the person if they died. They wouldn't have to die alone. Yeah, even just trying to make them more comfortable. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you've just come across a scene that you don't know what's going on. There's one guy that's seriously injured on the ground. It's a police cruiser. There's no police in sight. Would you be worried to stay behind by yourself because you don't know where the attacker is? Right. But couldn't they have just like radioed in on the police cruiser? Maybe, but they didn't do that. Yeah, that would be a bizarre scene. And it's easy for us to say what we would do. But you get put in that situation and your fight, flight or freeze can take over sometimes. It's so true. But I always find it fascinating what decisions people make. Mm hmm. They eventually make it to a house, they find a phone, and they call the police. The police arrive on scene and sadly identify that the injured man has passed away. And that he's one of their own. Oh! Sergeant Dean Frederick Pence of the Flossmore Police. He was off duty and found only about five miles away from his house. Oh. Dean had been shot four times with a thirty-eight caliber revolver. Twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the face. Oh all from close range. Huh. Dean was the police officer. Originally, when the couple pulled up, they didn't know that he was the police officer because he wasn't in uniform. He was in civilian clothes. Right. Dean was only 32 at the time and was a young father of two small daughters. As his widow of 12 years, Jan buried her husband and the community rallied around the devastated young family. The police went to work trying to figure out what had happened to their partner. A man that was described as a rough-hewn and happy-go-lucky guy with a quick wit and a warm personality. Dean was an active community member with local youth and was an enthusiastic athletic supporter. He was really well-liked in the community. Yeah, he sounds like a gem. And how long had he been on the police force? He had been with this police force for two years and he had served on another police force prior to that. So it's not like he was a rookie. He was seasoned enough that someone was able to get a hold of him. That's right. So as they investigate the scene, there isn't much for police to go on. There was little physical evidence that they could find at the scene. They could only make deductions about what had happened based on the positioning of the car, the body, and the blood. They could surmise from tire tracks that there had been two vehicles at the scene. But there were no signs of a struggle, so they believed that Dean had willingly gotten out of his car. Huh, because I was just thinking a police officer is not an easy target to overpower. No, they always have their suspicions raised, right? Yeah, and have training on combat. Mm -hmm. Dean had been shot with a 38 caliber revolver, a caliber that was used at that time by police. But there were no weapons found at the site, not even Dean's. 
His was found back in his locker at the precinct. So was he shot by another officer? Seems like someone who's matching his wit. Good guess, Christy. Originally, there was a lot of speculation that Dean was part of some undercover drug bust gone wrong, but that was quickly disproven. He had been off duty and hadn't been doing any undercover work at the time. Plus, he was driving a police cruiser. I was just going to say, he was <laughs> undercover. Yeah, he's in shorts or whatever, but he's not driving his police car up to the drug bust. There was a lot of talk from community members because he was so active trying to engage local youth and trying to keep them out of the drug scene that they thought, oh, he must have been trying to bust a drug dealer. Hmm. So this was just one of those gossip threads that you were talking about. Yep. But as the gossip went on, nobody could really give any reason why Dean was out driving his cruiser on his day off in a seemingly random location, unarmed. Yeah, that is odd. As police dug into Dean's activity, they discovered that the last person to have any contact with him had been his best friend, the dirtbag John Bauman. No way, his best friend and colleague. Uh-huh. John Earl Bauman was born on October 4th, 1941, in Illinois and he would live there his whole life. John's dad, Bill, was a railroad worker, and his mom, Letha, was a bookkeeper. He was raised with two sisters, and there were no reports of abuse or anything unusual about his childhood. Hmm. His family wasn't without its personal suffering, though. John's mother had grown up an orphan, and when she gave birth to her first child, John's older brother, he had died in infancy. Aww. I can imagine that both of these things left his mother with deep emotional scars. When we have seen this combination of loss in other cases, it's almost always turned out one of two ways. Sometimes the mother withdraws from her children and has difficulty bonding with them, or they become very protective of their children. That's true. It does usually tend to go one of those two ways. I was thinking about the Leonardo case. Yeah, that popped into my mind right away too. I don't know if either was the case for John, but it does make me wonder if he was the apple of his mother's eye and held a privileged position in his family, being the only surviving son. Hmm. If this was the case, it would certainly explain the personality traits that he displayed as an adult. He was a controlling man that liked to have things the way he wanted them. It seemed he struggled to view the world from anyone else's point of view other than his own. So he was treated like a little prince growing up. I think that's a good assumption to make, just based on his personality. Okay. He comes across as a man that was accustomed to getting his own needs met, whether he had to get them by applying charm, pulling a temper tantrum, or by using force. Oh, uh, we all know a man like that. Or even just a person. True. If he wanted something a certain way, he would eventually get it that way. John served in the Marines and completed two tours in the infantry in Vietnam in his 20s where he earned the nickname Bottles by his friends because of his thick-rimmed glasses. As an adult, people would describe John as being a bear of a man with a high voice. Some described him as easygoing, and others said he was very controlling. It seems he wasn't an outright uncontrollably evil dirtbag, but a selfish one. One that was used to having things his own way. Unfortunately for the victims in today's case, that fact didn't make him any less deadly. Hmm. So he's this great big burly kind of guy with a high-pitched voice. Yes. Oh, I'm having a hard time picturing that. It does seem like a little bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Yeah, because you're expecting someone of that stature to have this deep burly kind of voice. Mm-hmm. But apparently he had this high-pitched voice. Huh. Which is totally fine. It's just curious to me. <laughs> and I wonder if when I heard these descriptions of his voice, if that's why I picture him as a mama's boy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> No matter how big you get, if you're a mama's boy, you're a mama's boy. 
<laughs> I just went down this rabbit hole of this stupid TikTok about I love a mama's boy. <laughs> it's like, I think it's a TLC show. I've only seen little clips, but it is so entertaining. <laughs> these women who are trying to get married to these mama boys and they just cannot untie those apron strings. Oh, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> I have to admit, I spent way too much time watching them. I was getting so invested. Now you have to actually go back and watch this show. I do have to try and, yeah, find where I can watch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that seemed to be John's personality type, though. He just expected his own needs to be met all the time. So he's selfish. Definitely selfish. Ugh. John and Dean had met while they had worked on the railroad together. They had a long-standing friendship. They both lived in the same suburb of Richmond Park, just a couple of blocks apart. Each had a cute little bungalows with their wives and children. John and his wife, Gertrude, known as Trudy, had been married since July 17, 1964, and they had three small children, all girls, Helen, Kathy, and Elizabeth. And it was a good life for each of them. In 1968, Dean vouched for John when he applied to the Homewood Police Department, just a little more than 10 kilometers or seven miles from where they both lived. So they lived and worked in their hometown. It's sounding picture perfect right now. Mm -hmm. But John's time at the department was very short-lived. Nine months into his new profession as a police officer, John was caught and arrested for stealing two snow tires from a service station while he was on duty. What? He just wanted them, so he took them. And thought, oh, I am the law, so I'm above it? Yeah, that's the kind of personality he had. But it's not actually surprising with his sense of entitlement. Not at all. That seems to be John's character. John was caught. Big surprise. He was in a cop car in uniform, which gave him away for sure. (laughs) He was only given a year's suspension for his crime, but he was forced to resign from the police force. While Dean moved on to the Flossmore Police Department and experienced success in his career, John moved on to find work as a security guard and then an electrician and eventually settled at the Honeywell Company. As police dug into their friendship, they realized that there might just be more relationships going on than was apparent at first glance. There were rumors that Dean and John's wife, Trudy, were having an affair. And it turns out that this was a little bit more than just rumors. No way. I was thinking Dean was such a great guy. (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) Didn't we just have a case with swinging going on that went wrong? (laughs) That's right. But this was not swinging. This was a hidden affair. This was a hidden affair. Yeah. Huh. So then John, because he already is probably jealous of Dean because he surpassed him in his career. This is going to infuriate him. Yeah. It's a knock to his ego. Trudy went to the police and said that she was certain about her husband's involvement in Dean's death because just prior to Dean being found dead, she had told John about the affair. And that when confronted about it, she felt that John had confessed to her about Dean's murder. Oh, so his wife says, hey, I'm having an affair with your best friend. And then he turns up dead. Right. And then she confronted him about that, saying, Dean's dead and I just told you about the affair. And she felt that what John had told her after that was a confession that, yes, he had killed Dean. I did read some reports that John himself had actually made a confession to the police as well. And that's what led them to arresting the 29-year-old on Thursday, August 13th. But I couldn't substantiate these claims. And even if John had confessed originally, it was all for naught. When John recognized that the police had no solid evidence to tie him to the crime scene, he withdrew whatever statements he had made to them and made new ones. 
Instead, John now claimed that he and Dean had met at that location because they were meeting an unknown third party, but that third party never showed up. He left Dean to continue to wait for their visitor and didn't know what happened to him after he left. He told police it was just an unlucky coincidence that he had been the last person to see his friend alive. Hmm. So he's just trying to raise reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. Oh, it wasn't me. When I left him, he was fine. That's right. That is his story to the police. Huh. By September 16th, the grand jury in Will County refused to proceed with charges because of lack of evidence. The indictment failed because the jury believed that the evidence against John was merely hearsay and couldn't be substantiated. He was allowed to go free and continued on with his life just as before. Minus a friend. Oh, man. Dean's murder to this day has never been solved. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. John continued to toe the line that it had all just been an unlucky coincidence that he had just happened to be at the meeting place where Dean was shot just prior to him being murdered. Huh. But now, retrospectively, knowing that he is a murderer, that's very unlikely that that is actually what happened and that John must have killed Dean. And I think even at the time, the police strongly believed that it was John that killed Dean. They just didn't have any physical evidence to tie him to it. And because John recounted his so-called confession to the police, they only had his wife saying that he said this. So it was all hearsay. Right. He said, she said. That's right. But it is actually a little scary to think how a man in John's position with that police training, how well he could get away with murder, Mm -hmm. knowing what kind of evidence they're going to be looking for and making sure he's not leaving that behind. Exactly. And he would have been versed in the law to know what he could say and couldn't say. Yeah. It's always so wild to me when you hear about a dirtbag who has confessed to a murder and then recants that, and then they can't prosecute him because they don't have the evidence, even though he's gone through and told them that he already did this. It's so crazy to me. Mm-hmm. So John continues to go on with his life with Trudy and his girls. And this I found a little odd. If you believe that your husband murdered your lover, would you stay with him? No, I didn't think so either. It's not something I understand right now, but I'm sure that Trudy did have some good reason to stay because she would stay with John for the next 14 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. I was not expecting that because you would think you would be terrified of him. Especially since she was the one that went to the police and turned him in. Yeah. Huh. That's wild. And I don't know if she just truly believed that, oh, they said there wasn't any evidence, so he didn't do it. Or did she feel guilty and responsible? Like, this was my fault that Dean got murdered? Maybe, but do you think he would stay with the man that murdered him? I don't know if the guilt was bad enough or if she was fearful, but 14 years is a long time. There must be something else going on for her to have thought that was a good reason. And maybe it was just the girls. That's true, too. But if my husband was a cold-blooded murderer, I don't know that I'd want him around my daughters. It's true. But the next 14 years, she would stay with him until her own death when she would succumb to yet another set of bizarre coincidences and unfortunate accidents. After Dean's murder, John and Trudy moved their family five minutes away from their previous address and settled into a new bungalow at 21657 Richmond Road. John continued to work for Honeywell and Trudy started to work for Century 21 Host Realty as a relocation coordinator. She also worked part-time at the local Cravat Rexall drugstore. The two jobs, along with her three girls, kept her active and really busy. 
On the morning of April 21st, 1984, the Matheson Fire Department was called to the Bauman residence to put out a gasoline fire in a cluttered one-car garage. John had managed to escape the blaze, but Trudy was still inside the garage. As firefighters fought, neighbors consoled a distraught John. When the firefighters were able to extinguish the flames, they found Trudy's body on the floor. She was pronounced dead at the scene at 9.06 a.m. Oh. Police were called to the scene to investigate and question John about what had happened the morning of the fire. John recounts this story to them. He and Trudy had gone to the garage that morning to sort through some camping gear before the girls woke up. The family had an upcoming trip that they were trying to get organized for. As they organized things, Trudy was sitting on a blanket and she picked up a coffee can that had some gasoline in it. As she was pointing it out to him and asking him what was in it, she opened the lid and she went to hand it to him. Some of that gasoline sloshed out and spilled onto her clothing. As they continued to clean, Trudy had another unfortunate accident in the garage that morning. She accidentally tripped on a portable camp stove. And in the stumbling, the camp stove ignited, catching her gasoline-soaked clothing on fire. (laughs) No. As her body was engulfed in flames, Trudy ran around and John tried to extinguish the flames, but eventually had to flee for his own life as the fire started to spread in the garage. I'm not buying that. How ridiculous. Well, she accidentally (laughs) spilt gas. And it's not funny. I'm laughing just because it's so ridiculous. She accidentally spilt gasoline on herself and then accidentally tripped over and ignited a camp stove that then caught her on fire. And then she ran around so crazily I couldn't even help her. And then the whole garage was on fire. That's what he claims. And he was very detailed in his description of what had happened. This smells like a big hunkin' pile of BS. It does. Police thought the same thing. An initial examination of the scene and Trudy's autopsy turned up some very suspicious results. Trudy had little evidence of soot or smoke in her throat or lungs. And she had low levels of carbon monoxide in her blood, which indicated that she wasn't breathing when the fire started, as John had stated. Uh, Now this sounds more right. If she had been running around, presumably screaming in pain as her clothing burned, she would have been breathing in large amounts of air and smoke that was rising from her own body. Trudy was also found to have trauma to her neck, and the coroner believed that this was evidence of strangulation. Ugh. The scenario that was believed by the examining coroner was that Trudy, at age 37, was strangled to death and then doused in gasoline and then set on fire. Two days after the fire, John Bauman, now age 42, was arrested for murder for a second time in his life. Can you imagine how those neighbors that consoled him would have felt as he was charged with murder? Oh, no, I cannot even imagine. So shocked. You really would. You'd have a sense of betrayal. You'd have a sense of disgust. And just like you said, you'd be so bewildered. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you wouldn't believe it because this is your neighbor. They had gotten along for 14 years. This was the family that lived next door. But then I thought, how would you then feel years later when he's charged with murder again? Yeah. But you said he does this a third time. So is he getting off on this one? Mm -hmm. It seems like there's enough evidence to prove that his story was baloney. It does seem like it. This time, John is indicted. And on September 9th, 1985, his trial began. The prosecution argued that John had recently found out that Trudy wanted a divorce. And that was what had led him to strangle her and attempt to cover it up by setting her and the garage on fire. 
So again, his relationship isn't going the way he wants. She wants to leave him. And he's like, "Uh, uh-uh, no way. You don't call the shots. And in his mind, he's probably feeling like, I killed a man for you. You're not leaving me now. Uh Uh-huh. The defense argued that it was all just a series of unfortunate coincidences that led to a tragic accident. John denied everything about the relationship problems and said that the marks on Trudy's neck had been caused when she was running around on fire and that she had ran straight into a shelf at throat height. But that will be different markings than a strangulation. That Mm -hmm. would be more of a hard puncture. Or a bruising just on the very front, right? Yeah, it would have a sharp edge to it. Yeah. The defense brought in their own coroner to testify as an expert witness. He claimed that the levels of carbon monoxide in Trudy's body were high enough to indicate some smoke inhalation and that the neck injury could not be ruled out as accidental. This pathologist had never directly examined Trudy's body, only the reports and pictures from the other coroner. And really, that's not an unusual practice to have another expert witness come in and look at the reports and then give their opinion on them. Right. But there was actually photographs of the injuries. Mm -hmm. But he testified that you can't rule out that that's not accidental. He didn't say that it wasn't strangulation. He just said that you can't rule out that that's not accidental. Okay. A jury of eight women and four men deliberated four and a half hours and came back with a not guilty verdict. Oh, how? There's no way those were just a series of unfortunate events. There's no way. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that deliberation. Well, the jurors felt that the prosecution had not proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. It was felt that, quote, the state's case was a little too weak. The defense's final argument that the prosecution's case being so, quote, chocked full of reasonable doubt that he couldn't even begin to name it, had won the jury over. All they needed to do was prove reasonable doubt, and that's what they did. Hmm. And in a case like that, can they bring up, or did they bring up, that he had been suspected of murder before? They weren't allowed to. Oh. Interestingly, just three years later, John's defense attorney was charged and convicted with bribing witnesses to say what he wanted them to say during their testimonies, regardless of the evidence. Oh, that's dirty. John's case wasn't officially mentioned in the media as one of the cases in question, but I find it very interesting that there were two coroners that said, yes, she had been strangled before being set on fire. She had died first, and that's why there was not enough carbon monoxide in her blood. And then they had this other coroner that said, no, no, there was a big enough level. He probably was paid off. Or I guess I shouldn't say he probably was. There's a good likelihood that he was paid off. It does sound very suspicious. Hmm. A relieved John was let out of jail for a second time. Unfortunately, the trial had come at a cost to the grieving family. If it wasn't hard enough to lose their mother and then have their father accused of that murder, there was a divide in the sisters' bonds from that time forward. Two of John and Trudy's daughters, Kathy and Elizabeth, were relieved when their father was found not guilty. Helen, the oldest daughter, was not convinced of her father's innocence, which I think says a lot if your own child can't believe you. Yeah, that is. And how old would they be now? Like, are they adult children? They would have been in their late teens. So they're still under his care. Mm -hmm. And then can you imagine having to go back home to live with your dad after you think he killed your mother? Yeah. I think it was Helen the oldest that was in that kind of leaving home stage. Okay. 
Wow. But that says a lot. It does. If your own child can't believe you wholeheartedly that you're innocent of murder. Yeah. And there's that suspicion there. Because usually children just believe the world of their parents. Oh, absolutely. Having gotten off of murder charges for a second time in his life, John begins to look for love again. He found that love again with a woman named Vel. Valerie Joyce Delorier was an energetic self-starter who had worked her way up from a customer service representative at 3M Company, where she had been employed for 22 years, to the position of a manager. She was a divorcee with four grown children and was a devoted grandmother who loved to dance and was the romantic type that believed that she could still find love again. She was looking for Mr. Wright. She hadn't been jaded by her first two marriages, which says a lot about her. People described her as being just a beautiful person inside and out. Oh, this is so sad. John and Val met at a singles dance. While the oldies played, they fell for each other. Val's daughter Pam said that when her mom met John, she described him as, quote, a big, sad teddy bear, saying he's got these big, sad eyes. There's something about him that draws me to him. Oh, man. John was open with Val about his past. She was fully aware that he'd been charged with the murders of two people that were close to him in the past, but she just couldn't see how those big, sad teddy bear eyes could have been responsible for anything like that. She 100% believed his stories that everything had been a series of unfortunate coincidences that had led the police to believe he had committed murder. Twice. Wow. That just speaks to how pure she is to just want to give him the benefit of the doubt and believe him. Mm-hmm. After dating a short time, the two married in February of 1991, despite some family members having some reservations. Between them, they had a combination of seven adult children and six grandchildren. So there were a lot of family members to have opinions about their relationship. Oh yeah, and I'm sure they would have. Mm-hmm. I know I would have. Especially with a past like that. Yeah. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. The couple would spend the next few years globetrotting and enjoying sunny destinations. But it wasn't always roses and sunshine. Vel's children noticed little things about their new stepfather that were unsettling. He always seemed to get his way and pull tantrums if he didn't. Vel's son would later tell of a time that his mom had criticized the speed that John was driving. And he pulled a hissy fit, stopping the car and insisting that she drive if she thought she could do it better. Wow. I remember this is a 50-year-old man. This isn't a young teenage hothead. No, who's actually behaving like a little child throwing a fit, Mm -hmm. which kind of speaks to his narcissism. Yeah, it's just all about John. The couple started to argue more and more in front of other people. 
and cracks were showing in the relationship when they were at home. So they took frequent trips away, almost as a way to hide the fact that things weren't going so great. John was definitely not happy that things were not as he had hoped. He developed a plan to remedy his troubles. Well, it sounds like he's looking for perfection and just wants someone to bow down to his every need. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want anybody to have an opinion other than his. Yeah. In 1995, the couple took a trip to the Caribbean. John, now 53, and Vel, 55, checked into the Royal Antiguan Hotel on May 12th and spent over a week there, then hopped over to Barbuda, and then headed back again to the original resort on May 25th. From people who saw them interacting, they appeared to be getting along. A staff member at the hotel and a taxi driver would later testify that the couple appeared loving together. It is amazing what removing the stresses of home and extended family can do for a relationship. That and the knowledge that things are almost over and an act is needed to get away with murder. Oh no. So she probably wouldn't have seen this coming at all then. Because you're right, when you're on holidays, like vacation mode is a different mode altogether. And just even getting away from those stresses and spending that time together. Like, how could he not have felt that reconnection during Mm -hmm. that time? It's so sinister to me to think of him leading her on, letting her think, oh, we're all lovey-dovey, everything's great. And in the back of his mind, having this evil plan. And he had planned it from before they left. Yeah, this was part of his plan. Mm -hmm. On May 27th, the day before John and Val were set to come home from their vacation, Filbert Jackson, a local resident, saw an unbelievable thing from the roof of his house that was adjacent to the resort building. He just happened to be out on his rooftop with binoculars when he heard a scream that had him look in the direction of the hotel shortly after 5 (laughs) p.m. He just happened to be on his roof looking into a resort where all these women would have been wearing bikinis? Yep. (laughs) Tell me you're a pervert without telling me you're a pervert. That's kind of what I thought, too. (laughs) But regardless, we're glad he was there. Yep. And had his creepy little binoculars with him. Ew. (laughs) Sorry. Maybe he was bird watching. We shouldn't make assumptions. I think he was goat watching, actually. Goat watching? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get to it. This is taking a whole nother turn, then. (laughs) There's a whole story there. (laughs) But regardless of what he was watching... That's when he saw a woman falling backwards off the roof. Oh, my goodness. He said he saw someone falling from the roof to the ground on the south side of the building. When he yelled, a man who was also standing on the roof reacted and started pacing with his hands on his head. The man then went and looked over the southern side of the roof and then went down the fire escape to where the body was. So he pushed her off the edge, heard someone yell and knew he had to act all panicked. It seems that way. What a horrible way to die. That split second of horror knowing that your husband has just pushed you and you're falling off that ledge to your death. Nothing you can do to fight back midair falling. Yeah. And from Val's children's testimonies at the trial, we learn that she's actually terrified of heights. (gasps) Oh, what a dog. Yep. In his statement to police two days later, Filbert described in more detail seeing Val go over the roof. He said, quote, She was just about the same level of the roof, but she was in the air. She was falling backwards with her buttocks pointing down and her feet hunched to the level of her chest. At the time I saw the woman falling, the man was standing on the roof facing the direction in which the woman was falling. I cannot say how far from the edge of the roof that he was standing. 
At no time did Filbert see the man make any attempt to catch the woman. And her position of falling backwards would kind of allude to the fact that they were face to face and he pushed her off. Mm -hmm. In that account, to prove that he had the details correct, Filbert described the woman's clothing in detail. So he's trying to say, I know what I'm talking about. It's ingrained in my mind. I see this image over and over again, like to the point where I can still describe her clothing. Yeah, that would be traumatizing for him too. Mm -hmm. And it speaks too to John's brashness to push her face to face. Like he didn't even do it out of surprise, like from behind. He wanted her to know and see his face right before she fell to her death. Yeah, that she wasn't measuring up to what he wanted. Oh, what a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. When Filbert saw Vel fall to her death, he called the hotel to tell them what had just happened, and then he called the police right away. When police and medics arrived at the scene, they found Vel's broken body at the bottom of the hotel. She had fallen eight stories, almost a hundred feet, and landed on the concrete below, 14 feet out from the building's edge. An investigation of the scene revealed that there was no high winds that day, and that the visibility was clear. The rooftop of the hotel was not a sheer edge. It did have a 16-inch protective wall around the edge of the roof. Oh. There was no evidence of loose tiles, and there was no evidence of moisture on the roof. There was no reason to explain what had caused Valerie to stumble or to trip. Well, and if she had tripped over it, she would have tried to reach back towards the building, which would have made her, I'm assuming, land closer to the building instead of having that force push her out. You are on it today, Christy. That's exactly what the expert witnesses will talk about during the trial. Huh. Based on Filbert's eyewitness account that John had been on the roof with his wife when she fell, police were immediately suspicious of him. They couldn't find any reason why Filbert would have lied about what he saw. He had no no connection. He didn't know them. So they didn't think that Filbert was making all this up. No, and like he said, it's ingrained in his mind. If he knows all these tiny little details, even down to what she was wearing, he was paying attention. It wasn't like he caught it just by a slight little glimpse out of the corner of his eye. No, he had his binoculars and the scream drew him to look in that direction. For the third time in his life, John was brought in for questioning about a murder victim by the police. He again gave a full story of unfortunate coincidences that led to the death of his wife. He told police that his relationship with his wife was warm and loving. And on the morning of the 27th, they had went to the pool together. They had had lunch together. And John had said that Vel had gone back to the pool after lunch and that he noticed that she seemed to be, quote, rather depressed. He also said that she had started drinking heavily, but that he hadn't because his stomach was upset. While Val lounged by the pool, he went off to the shop to buy a newspaper and on impulse bought a pack of greeting cards. He went back to the hotel room and wrote on two of the cards, love messages for his wife. He put one on her pillow and he put the other one in a small plastic bag, which he tucked into his pocket. He then rejoined Val and they later went back to their room where she found his first love note that he had written her. And then they went up onto the roof. He and Vel had discovered a staircase earlier in their stay, which led from the eighth floor of their hotel room and had on a number of occasions gone up there together to enjoy the view. Apparently, there were goats to look at. <laughs> that's where the goats are coming <laughs> Yeah, in. and that's where I say, and I'm sure this is what the other guy was looking at with his binoculars. It was goats, not a pool full of tourists in bikinis. <laughs> I don't know if I'm still buying it. <laughs> and that just seems really odd if she's so scared of heights. 
that she would go up there repeatedly with him to enjoy the view. And even if you did go up to enjoy the view, like I am terrified of heights and I'll go up, but I need to stay really, really far from the edge. Yeah. Like you wouldn't be looking right over. I'm not scared of heights. So for me, I'm like, yeah, that would be so fun to go up to the roof and look. But I'm thinking, okay, I'm terrified of spiders. Would I for enjoyment go into a cave of spiders? Mm -hmm. No. Regardless of how they got up on the roof, this was John's account of what had happened when they had gotten to the roof. And he's saying they were going to look at goats. Yep. Even that's weird. Like, not the view. Like, <laughs> Well, it was the view and the goats. Apparently, there were goats somewhere on a hillside. Did they have, like, these beautiful manes of hair? And, like, they're goats. Go goats are where it's at. Goats are the goat. <laughs> yeah. So this is what John said to police. He said, quote, We walked up the stairs, either side by side, or maybe I was one step ahead, but we were holding hands. When we reached the tile area of the roof, we stepped out onto the tiles, and I think we glanced at the hill to look for the goats. It was a very short time before I pulled the card out of my pocket, and I started to hand it to Valerie, and she reached for it, and I think it hit the side of her hand, and it fell. It didn't fall straight down. It kind of fell at an angle, maybe a foot and a half in front of us, and we both started to pick it up, and, um, well, in order to pick it up, you had to take a short step, but it was not right at our feet. As she went forward on her foot, the other one was slightly at the edge of the other, or maybe she didn't lift her foot up, or it did not slide very well. Valerie was wearing slippers. Well, her body was going forward, and her foot did not go far enough, so she lost her balance, and she stumbled forward, took a step or two in trying to regain her balance, and she just went right off the roof. It had all been a devastating accident, according to John. Wow, he is so descriptive in what he's saying. Mm -hmm. I can see why people would believe his recounts. It's so detailed. Right. But they do say that that is a sign of a liar when they're giving you way more details than what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. Probably someone else would have just been like, she stumbled trying to pick up the card and fell. And I don't know about you. But if I'm in a close proximity to the edge of a eight-story tall building and I start to stumble, I don't know that I'm going to continue to go forward trying to catch my balance rather than just like drop to the ground <laughs> so that I don't go over that edge. Yeah. There's no way I would chase a cart anywhere because no. I would be terrified. <laughs> I would have to go up to the roof because I would have to prove that I wasn't terrified, but I would be terrified and I would not get anywhere near the edge. I would barely leave where the door was. Right. And if you started to stumble, would you not like quickly go down to the ground mm -hmm. so that you wouldn't fall? Yeah. To me, that would be an instinctual move to, to stop. Yeah. yeah. Based on John's version of events, the investigating police went up to the roof to look for the card that John had allegedly dropped on the ground the one that had caused the accident. When they couldn't find the card, they asked John about it again, and John then pulls it from his pocket, still inside the plastic bag where he had put it in his story. Oh, but he's saying he took it out of the bag to hand it to her. Mm -hmm. And if your wife has just plummeted eight stories to her death, are you going to pick up the card and put it back in the plastic bag and then shove it in your pocket? That was my question. So that means that after his wife fell to her death, he carefully placed it back in its protective plastic baggie and then put it back in his pocket. Or the other option is that he gave it to her in the bag and then picked it up. Baloney. 
Neither no. seem plausible. The wife that you're saying you love so much has just fallen to her death. You're not even thinking about the card. No. Who not cares at all. about the card, John? Nobody. So the police are now starting to get really suspicious of John. And they check up on John's story about going to the gift shop. The clerk on duty told police that John had been in earlier that day, but it had been with Valerie at his side. With discrepancies starting to appear in all of his stories, the police start to pick apart John's version of events. He had said that Valerie stumbled face first off the roof. This was a direct contradiction of the eyewitness account that had been given. Mm, And she landed on her back, right? Mm -hmm. And were the greeting cards purchased at that store? Yeah. Okay. But they had gone together. So he had tried to sell it to police that, oh, he was doing this because she was feeling depressed and he wanted to cheer her up and this was a surprise for her. And that wasn't the case. She was here with him and they were purchasing greeting cards together. So she probably believed they were intended for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Did they find the card that he had given her that he had written out? Like, did he actually do that? Yeah, he did. Okay. Other workers inside the hotel, a duty manager and a housekeeper, said that they had also heard a scream that was followed later by a noise on the fire escape. When they ran outside to see what the commotion was, they saw John on the fire escape and said that John was not moving that fast and did not seem overly concerned as he looked down at them as he descended. What? Nothing about John's versions of events was adding up. No, if that was someone that you loved, you'd almost be falling down that fire escape. You'd be trying to get down there so quick. You'd be screaming at them, right? Yeah. Back in the States, Valerie's son, who was a lawyer and had never warmed up to John, contacted the Cook County State's Attorney's Office to request an autopsy be done by a state's official. Antiguan authorities were on board with a second opinion once they learned about John's history. When her body was examined, Valerie was found to have 19 injuries all over her body. Her death was due to multiple fractures of her spine, skull, and ribs. She also had lacerations to her heart caused by the impact with the ground. Oh my goodness. It was believed that she died instantly. There are several reasons why Valerie's family at home were starting to get suspicious. When John called them to tell them about their mother's death, he had been very vague in the details and had sidestepped their questions. They became even more distrustful when they went to their mother's house and were unable to get in with their keys. The locks had all been changed. What? Mm -hmm. John had tried to explain this away by saying that their mother had lost her keys, so the locks had needed to be changed prior to them leaving for their trip. This story didn't hold up either. When her kids eventually got into the house, they found their mother's keys easily, and none of them worked in the locks. Huh. So had he changed the locks before they left or after he got home? He never comes back to the States. Oh, he doesn't? He's not even there? Nope. So he changed the locks before they even left? Uh Uh-huh. Or he had somebody do that right when they left. Ooh, he's conniving. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is why the children's suspicions were rising. If you had just changed all of your locks and were having someone look after your house for three weeks while you were on vacation, wouldn't it be a priority for you to make sure they had the new key? Mm -hmm. Like the reason why her children had a key to the house was because they were supposed to be looking after the house. Right. And you would give your wife a copy of that key to have on her keys. And she didn't even have one on her keys. No. 
Their mom's keys were left laying out in the open, almost like someone who had been contracted to change the locks would have left them after they had used them to gain access to the house to change the locks. Oh, they just left them on the counter kind of a thing. Yeah, we don't need these anymore. We use them to get into the door to change all the locks. Now we just leave them in the house after. John Bauman was arrested by the Antiguan police on May 28th and placed in custody. So just a day later, they worked very quickly. And were they at that point, because it's a different country, aware of his previous arrests? They were. Okay. Yeah. But their prosecution had their work cut out for them because none of John's previous arrests or accusations, even though they had knowledge of them, they were not allowed to be entered as evidence for this trial. Hmm. That's kind of interesting that if you just fall under suspicion, that can't follow you. Nope. John's trial was highly publicized in Antigua, one of the most highly publicized in the country's history. They said it was like the O.J. Simpson trial. Really? Mm -hmm. By Antiguan law, if convicted, John faced an automatic sentence of death by hanging. Oh. Fifteen of Valerie's relatives, including her children, siblings, and their children, flew from the Chicago area to attend the trial and to testify. Expert witnesses were brought in to testify of the physics of Valerie's fall. It had taken her body 2.48 seconds to fall the 99 feet, and that given the conditions on the day of the accident, that the only way for Vell's body to land 14 feet away from the building was if she had had a horizontal force applied, one that was more than just a stumble. Mm-hmm. You totally called it. Experts testified that in the absence of a push or Vell's body hitting anything on the way down, that her body should have landed on a nine-foot platform roof that was an overhang for the first floor level, not the full 14 feet from the building base like she had. So I wonder if he knew that. I wonder if he knew that there was that awning there and that he had to push her over that. I'm not sure he did. I think he just pushed her and whatever came, came. We won't give him that much credit. Yeah. During the trial, John chose not to be sworn in officially. Under Antiguan law, the accused may ask questions and answer them from the dock and make unsworn statements in front of the jury. And John took full advantage of this. Wow. It's a whole different court system there. Yeah. After hearing the expert witnesses' testimonies and testimonies of the hotel staff that they had heard something on the fire escape after hearing a scream, John kind of changes up his statements and makes it a little bit different than his original version of events that he had initially told police. Hamming it up for the jury, he told them that when a love note had fallen between them and he had come up again, as Val stumbled, he heard her say, honey. And as he was coming up, he picked up the card. She was falling over the side of the roof. He claimed Valerie had said, honey, not yelled like the scream that alerted the eyewitness Filbert or alerted the workers inside the hotel on the second floor. The other little tidbit that he changed was that he had rushed over to the side of the building and saw Valerie hit the fire escape and bounce away from the building. Oh. Interestingly, these comments were only made after the prosecution's expert witnesses had given their testimony. Before hearing the expert's testimony, John, in all of his statements, had never mentioned seeing Valerie hit anything as she fell or even watching her fall at all. He changed his story to fit the new details, just like when he had told the police of his first wife's running her throat into a shelf after finding out that there was traceable trauma on her neck. Mm. 
As the trial continued, the prosecution also brought up damning evidence that Valerie rarely drank and was terrified of heights so that she was not likely to go near the edge of any roof, especially not close enough that if she stumbled, she could go over the edge. A forensic scientist testified that there were no illegal drugs found in Val's system, but she did have an unusually high level of alcohol in her stomach, which had not yet circulated into her bloodstream indicating that the alcohol was consumed close to the time of her fall, not earlier in the day at the pool, as he had described her as being depressed and drinking. Huh, so she wasn't intoxicated when she fell. She had her wits about her. Yep, it was in her stomach and hadn't absorbed into her bloodstream. Right. It was also revealed that John had changed his reservation at the hotel for his last night of stay to be only for one person. What? Yes. Before the murder. Before. Prior to his wife's unexpected accident. Oh, you ding dong. (laughs) Seriously. I guess a single occupancy rate saves you a fair bit of money and it was worth it to him to change one night to a single occupancy. (laughs) Oh, what a dumb dirtbag. Thankfully, he's dumb and did that. Well, I wonder if he was dumb or was he just getting so overconfident? Well, he's already gotten away with murder twice. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. He even went to trial and got away with murder. Yeah. And now he's thinking, oh, I'm in a different country. Maybe he's not giving the officials the credit that they deserve. Like, oh, they're not going to be able to catch me and figure it out. They're not going to know about my past. No, everybody's just going to believe my story. Right. That it was an accident. And he's put so much thought into all of these murders that he probably almost had like a mental checklist of things that I have to do. Mm -hmm. And he's not planning to go home right away. So yeah, I might as well save myself a buck. (laughs) So crazy, right? Oh my goodness. The final nail in John's coffin was the information about the accidental life insurance policy that he had taken out for both him and Val a year before through his company. On June 8th, the insurance brokerage firm dealing with the policy received notification of Valerie's death. Less than two weeks after her death and while John was in custody for her murder, the only beneficiary was John. The address where the forms were sent was not the couple's home address, but another address in the same city where they lived. So did she sign these? Like, was she aware? She wasn't. So he took it out. Mm -hmm. And whoever had sent that notification had said, okay, you need to send the papers to this address. And it wasn't the couple's home address. Hmm. But the only person that could have benefited from that policy was John. And whose address was it? Was it a P.O. box or? It was a random address that wasn't claimed by anybody. Oh, so how was he going to get those papers? Well, it's thought that John was setting up a new residence and that that's where the insurance forms were sent to. This new address was not known by any of Valerie's children. It couldn't be proven that John was the person that notified the insurance company of Valerie's death but he was the only person that would be able to complete the necessary forms for the claim and would have been the only person to benefit from the policy. And the only person who even knew that the policy existed. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like he was setting up a new house to go to. Yeah. On April 4th, after deliberating for two and a half hours, the jury of five women and four men found 54-year-old John guilty of murder. Hallelujah. The cincher for this jury, they said that they just couldn't believe John who said he loved his wife so much, would just watch her fall and make no attempt to grab her leg or make any attempt to save her. Yeah, exactly. You'd think you'd be halfway hanging over the ledge, an attempt to grab her. Mm -hmm. 
John was immediately sentenced to death by hanging. Other than bowing his head slightly, John showed no reaction. He made no public statement afterwards. There were some big reactions from others, though. His sentence was met with cheers by the crowds that had gathered outside, yelling things like, quote, You deserve to hang. You think you can come here and get away with it? You deserve to die. The locals were gathering outside yelling these kinds of things. Whoa. John was jailed in Her Majesty's Prison, a two-story brick structure built in 1735. It does not sound like a nice place. There have been several pieces written about it and the treatment received by its prisoners. The overcrowded prison conditions are often described as inhumane. And being built in that time frame, it's probably more like a dungeon than a prison. I looked at some of the pictures and it looks super sketchy. Good. I'm glad he got sent there. Mm -hmm. This was a fact that Valerie's youngest child, Victor, seemed to care little about when he told the Chicago Tribune that he, quote, found it ironic that it took the Antiguan justice system with fewer resources than American law enforcement to put John behind bars. He was a strong supporter of the way Antigua had done things. That's a good point. Not to cast shade on the American justice system, but he does bring up a valid point. He was able to murder two other people and get away with it. Mm -hmm. Valerie's daughter, Pam, said, quote, It makes me crazy to think that if these 12 people referring to the jury for John's first wife, had done their job, my mom would still be alive. Oh, that is a sad thought. Mm -hmm. On May 25th, 2000, the Privy Council dismissed John's one and only appeal that he was allowed to have. On May 31st, just six days after his appeal was dismissed, 58-year-old John was found hanging in his cell. He had tied his bedsheets together to the cell window bars and ended his own life his own way. Still by hanging. Mm -hmm. And how poetic, really, because he always wanted control. He wanted it to be his way. Mm -hmm. And so I can just hear his internal dialogue. You want me to die by hanging? I'm doing it myself. Yep. And that is the story of the cynical and calculating, vindictive dirtbag, John Earl Bauman, that was so set on having things live up to his desires that he killed those that loved him in order to get his own way. Wow. And really, he really robbed the justice system by doing that himself. Mm -hmm. What a dirtbag. Yeah. Valerie's family was relieved when they heard that he had died because they weren't really sure what would happen with the Antiguan system. They didn't know if they could trust it to hang him. They didn't know if he would appeal to the U.S. consulate to bring him home. Mm. And so they actually found some relief in it. There was a lot of variables that could have taken place. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think the way you understood his death was absolutely correct. I think that he took his own life so that he could be in control, even in the very end. Wow. I didn't find any redeeming qualities about that guy. He was just a dirtbag. He was just selfish. Yeah, and manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so shocked that he was able to talk his way out of those other two murders. It seems very plausible that they could be attributed to him. Yeah, I guess he's never actually been convicted, but... We know. (laughs) Christy's made her mind up. And we hope you listeners let us know what your thoughts are on our Facebook and social media feeds. Yes, absolutely. We love hearing your guys' comments, your insightfulness, and what you have to say about each of our cases. So please go do that. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back with you again next week. See ya. Bye.
Okay, one more check, one more check, one more check, one more check. <laughs> Christy touched her mic again. I did. <laughs> so now we have to do one more check. I lied. Third check, third check. <laughs> We're so glad that you're sticking it out with us. <laughs> He's, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, wait, I, uh. <laughs> And wasn't living up to his expectations. Hence, it wasn't going as he expected. <laughs> I'm not trying the connections, Christy. What's she talking about, girl? <laughs> like colleague, best friend, murder. Oh. <laughs> You're safe, Christy. It's okay. Okay. You ain't my friend. <laughs> I'm not going to murder you. <laughs> We're not getting paid, so you're not really my colleague. Yeah. <laughs> On the morning... Morning, morning. When the firefighters were able to able to distinct, not distinguish, extinguish. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't always roses and sunshines. Sunshines. How many sunshines are there? There's lots. You are my sunshines. <laughs> Fifteen of Vel's rabbit. Fifteen of Vel's rabbit. Let's try it again. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.